I know there are prosperity preachers on the television today that will tell you that the proof of a godly life is a life of ease and pleasure and the road of least existence. But Paul teaches the exact opposite. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. There is a great battle today for the Bible, and as we continue our study in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Pastor Brogy is going to share, among other things, why he believes the Bible is the inerrant and inspired Word of God. All over America, there are churches compromising, rationalizing, and questioning the authority of Holy Scripture. So, let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins his message entitled, Standing Firm in the Book. That great Christian, Sir Walter Scott, when lying on his deathbed, said to his nephew, Son, bring me the book. And of course, he had thousands of books in his library, and he said, Uncle, which book do you mean? He said, Son, there's only one book, the book of books, bring me the Bible. Now, the saints and heroes of the ages have always pillowed their heads on the promises of God when facing death. We can find strength in God's Word, promises to live by each day as we know God's Word and as we apply it. Now, I might share a brief word of testimony. I've been studying this book now for almost three decades, and the more I read it and study it, the more I am thrilled by it. And if the Lord tarries, I hope that He will give me the opportunity to preach every single chapter and every single verse in the Bible. What keeps me going from week to week, from month to month, from year to year is not the way I feel, but what I know. And what I know, I know from the Word of God. And as you fall into the fathomless depths of Scripture, you know no man, no genius, even on the most remarkable level, could ever have conceived this book on his own. It's the Word of God. Someone has well said that it is so deep that scholars can swim in it without ever touching bottom, and yet little children can drink from it without drowning because it is the Word of God. We want to begin reading precisely where we left off last time, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Remember, Timothy is hearing from the Apostle Paul of days that would be terrible, and he's admonishing him now how he should respond. He says, beginning in verse 10, But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now remember, as we saw last time, the emphasis in this chapter is both on knowledge and responsibility. 
the chapter opened with these words, but realize this, understand this. And then Paul goes on to give Timothy some critical information concerning the last days. In verses 1 through 9, we studied in detail last time the information Paul gave to Timothy in reference to the character of the last days. And then in verses 10 through 17, he instructs him again in terms of uh, how his behavior, how his belief about those last days ought to be affected because God knows that what you do is influenced by what you know. Now, we saw that this phrase, the last days, refers to that period of time that began with the birth of the church. It may seem logical, it may seem natural to apply the term last days to some future time frame, to that time just before Jesus comes back. But the Bible will not allow you to restrict that term simply to those days exclusively. As you read through the New Testament, it becomes obvious that the apostles believed that they were in the last days. And so with his coming, with the coming of Messiah, the old age, the old deal, the old covenant, the Old Testament has passed away and a new day has dawned. So on the birthday of the church, Peter stands up and he quotes the prophet Joel. He said what they saw on that day, the coming of the Spirit, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind. Peter believed that he was in the last days, and with the coming and the indwelling of the promised Holy Spirit, he was seeing a fulfillment of what Joel had said. In similar fashion, the writer of the Hebrews says in his epistle, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. This being so, the New Testament teaches with the birth of the church, we have been living in the last days. We know that to be true, not just from these New Testament passages and others, but we also know this to be true from the immediate context. It's plain from what Paul says to Timothy that he's not simply giving predictions about some future epoch that he will never live to see, but the day that he lives in. We know this from the command that's given in verse 5. After he lists these people and these kinds of people who will be alive in the last day, he issues a command and he says at the end of verse 5, avoid such men as these. That means they're alive and well in Timothy's day. And so what Paul writes is not simply a description of the future, but the day in which Timothy found himself. And so rightfully, these are called the last days. In addition, we've seen that it's also proper to refer to what some call the last of the last days. We know that because Holy Scripture gives a very distinctive description of those days that will come upon us just before Jesus Christ comes back. Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, describing such days, said, and because lawlessness, that is sin, is increased, most people's love will grow cold. In the same sermon, he said, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. All what things? All the things he's just said, the earthquakes, the famines, the persecutions, the sin that will break out, all these things are just the beginning of birth pangs. Now, he warned that as we approach the end, as we approach the last of the last days, that we will see an increase in such activity. 
The sin that was true in Paul's day was true a thousand years ago, was true a hundred years ago, and it's true in our day. But the closer we move to the return of Christ, the more definite these things will become. So Paul says in this chapter, warning us of that truth, verse 13, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So to use Jesus' analogy with a woman in birth, giving labor, the contractions increase in frequency and intensity. And while we've always had these things, God warns us that they will increase in frequency and intensity. And so we can use the phrase, the last of the last days. Now, this period, known as the last days, is described in the opening of this chapter as difficult times or seasons. We saw that the word difficult means perilous, savage, hard to deal with. It's only found one other place in all the New Testament where it describes the two Gadarene demoniacs. And there's no doubt that while these characteristics started to appear in the first century, they have come with even greater intensity here in the 21st century. We have an evil that is deeper, that is broader, that is coming with greater intensity, that is being accepted and promoted by the world in a bolder way. It's not that there are just small pockets of it now. It has become worldwide. And so Timothy, knowing that God said this will happen, understanding the character of those who would be alive in this time frame, Paul admonishes him very directly. Look at verse 10. It begins with a strong contrast. But you, but you, four little monosyllables in the original, suder, it's the same two words that he begins verse 14 with. But you, Suter, here translated, you, however. And these little monosyllables are crucial to our understanding of this passage of Scripture. In contrast to the men that he described in verses 2 through 9, who are lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, men who have a form of religion, who oppose the truth, who spread false teaching. In contrast to that, Timothy, you are to be different. You are to be different. And indeed, he was different. That's why verse 14 says he is to continue to be different. In fact, all Christians are to be different because the world's tendency is to always want us to be squeezed into its mold. Jesus said we're not to be like a reed shaken by the wind, just blown about and tossed about by the winds of doctrine, by the habits and the cultural mildews of this culture. No, we are to be conscious of the pervading problems of our day. And we live in a day where there is a direct challenge to traditional biblical values. Just this morning coming in, five minutes till seven, I heard on the radio that the governor of California yesterday signed a bill giving equal benefits to homosexual couples in his state. Listen, all the time we are being challenged. And God warned us that those days that precede the coming of Christ will be like the days of Noah and like the days of Lot. They will be days of immorality and they will be days of perversion. And so verse 10 begins, but you followed my teaching conduct. Paul wants Timothy he wants to affirm Timothy for what he has done. Now notice, you followed, it's a past tense. Circle that, underscore that in your mind, because this passage really revolves around two words, and that's how I've divided the outline. You followed, speaking of the past, my teaching 
in conduct and so forth. And so rehearses for Timothy how he has lived up till this point. But then secondly, he wants Timothy to continue. Look at verse 14. You, however, continue in, now he's speaking of the future, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. And so this passage unfolds around the past and the future. Timothy's loyalty in the past and Timothy's loyalty in the future. So with that introduction, let's get into the details. Let's consider first his loyalty in the past. Again, verse 10 reads, but you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. Timothy's position in relation to the Apostle Paul is described in terms of a certain following. Now, this word followed is used in the New Testament both literally and figuratively. Literally, it was used of someone who actually physically followed someone else. When we were children and we'd walk to school and sometimes after a snowstorm, you'd have to have a lot of snow to cancel school where I lived. Today, they just predict it's going to happen and they'll cancel school. But in either case, we walked to school uphill in both directions. And sometimes, you know, when we walked, we went through the snow. We'd follow the person in front of us. And you'd put your foot in their footprint. You literally actually followed them. It's used in that sense sometimes literally in the New Testament. But this same word followed is used figuratively in two senses. Either of someone who follows with the mind, and I hope this morning you're following this sermon with your mind, that you're not out in space somewhere thinking about this afternoon. That's how Luke uses it in the first chapter when he tells Theophilus of the painstaking investigation or following of everything that had happened. So sometimes we use it that way in English. We say, I'm following you, meaning I'm getting what you're saying. But this word can also be used figuratively of someone who follows faithfully in their behavior. Not someone who simply understands it or follows with his mind, but someone who becomes a disciple of the one teaching. Paul has already used it this way in 1 Timothy 4.6. He speaks of Timothy and the sound doctrine which you have been following. Very clearly, it does not mean simply that Timothy understood with his mind, but that he followed with his life. We could say Timothy practiced what Paul preached. And that's precisely the way it is being used here. But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. Timothy was not some detached disciple. He was a dedicated disciple. He was absorbed in the teaching of the Apostle Paul. He believed it and he lived it because he knew it came from God. That Paul spoke with Christ's authority because he was an apostle of Christ. In like fashion, Paul wrote the Corinthians and he said, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. So you could really summarize this chapter around these two verbs and around these pronouns. You know, as you study the scripture, and I want to encourage you not just to read the scripture, but to study it. One of the things that you want to look for are not only tense changes, but also pronouns, because many a passage is built around certain pronouns that God gives us. And so verse 2 spoke of, for men will be. And he says that they will enter into households. They will not make further progress. They will do this. They will do that. 19 qualities that we studied last time. But beginning in verse 10, he says, but you, Timothy, 
You, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, and so forth. And so the contrast is clear. In the first half of the chapter, you have men who follow their own inclinations. Lover of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. They follow their own sinful fall and lust. But Timothy has an altogether different standard, namely the teaching and example of the Apostle Paul. So now he lists the qualities of his life. Having listed the qualities of these who love self and love money in verses 2 through 5, now he lists the qualities of Timothy's life that are in contrast to these men. By the way, Paul is not bragging in verses 10 and 11 as he catalogs this list of virtues and sufferings. I have some liberal commentaries that say, well, Paul is just blowing his own horn. And so you have, they would say, the humanness of the Scriptures coming through. Some men who argue for the fallibility of the Bible. So Paul writes about his faith, patience, love, persecutions, and suffering. But understand that what Paul is doing by the inspiration of the Spirit of God is he is simply giving two evidences as to the genuineness of his teaching. Namely, that he lived the life and he was willing to endure the suffering. We saw last time when we looked at Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and from Matthew 12 that Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. And we saw that fruit comes in two ways, in lifestyle, the way a teacher lives, but also a teacher's fruit is his teaching. And so in either case, Paul wants to affirm the fact that this is a good test, that he is God's man, as seen, one, in his sincerity of life, and two, in his willingness to suffer. These false teachers who have committed themselves to self-indulgence would seek no suffering whatsoever but the path of least resistance. But Paul lived a life of righteousness. He practiced what he preached. And if it meant suffering, then so be it. Now, I want you to notice how Timothy followed Paul, who in turn followed Christ. And I want you to do what Timothy does. We need to follow Paul because Paul followed Christ. And I want you to see three ways in which he is commended for following Paul. First, Timothy followed sound doctrine. Again, verse 10 says, But you followed my teaching. My teaching, in this case, meant the faith, the gospel, the deposit, that we've been studying in these two epistles. Timothy had learned from Paul that no no matter how appealing a teacher may be, if the man is not preaching the truth of God's word, then he is not worth following. Now, ultimately and unfortunately, we have many today who are following everything but Paul. And we live in a day where there is a famine in the land for the word of God. And in many churches that actually believe the Bible... The Bible may be read briefly, but it will never be referenced again in the entire service. There is a famine in God's land for God's Word. Add to that on radio and on TV, we have a great deal of pseudo-Christianity. It's nothing more than a mixture of psychology, success motivation, a little human personality thrown in, and then a verse here and there to baptize their teaching to make it sound religious and biblical. But if you look at it carefully, it is so far from Paul's teaching and Paul's example. In fact, if Paul were here today, I think in many a church, he would not even be accepted and considered to be a pastor, much less a missionary. Here is a man who uh, had a prison record, He had a physical infirmity. 
Just about everywhere he went, he stirred up trouble. He created more than one riot. He didn't cater to special interests and special needs. He didn't speak in such a way that was politically correct, yet God used them, and he was worthy of Timothy's following. So first, Timothy is commended because, Paul fought, because he followed Paul in sound doctrine. He knew what it was that he should believe. Secondly, Timothy followed what he believed. He not only knew what he believed, he followed what he believed. He says again in verse 10, but you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose. Now, Timothy followed Paul's conduct, the way he lived, and certainly the way Paul lived backed up what he taught. In addition, he followed Paul's purpose, his aim in life. And there was never a question about Paul's purpose as it related to his life. Earlier, some years before, if you remember, Acts 20, Paul gathered the Ephesian elders, the same city that Timothy is now in, acting as an apostolic delegate and pastor. And Paul gathered those men, those elders, and he said, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's purpose was to live for Christ, to honor and to glorify him. Third, we see that Timothy followed Paul's example of faith. And Paul was a man of faith who trusted God to work through him and to provide for him. Fourth, he followed his example of patience. Macrothumia, the Greek word patience. Macro, we get our word large from it, macro. We speak of macroeconomics and so forth. Thumia, we get our word thermos, heat from it, great heat. Here, translated patience, other places, tolerance or long-suffering. And it speaks of patience specifically towards aggravating people. Fifth, he spoke of the fact that he followed his example of love in contrast, of course, to these who had a love for self, money, and pleasure. Six, Timothy practiced what Paul preached and that he followed his perseverance. Now, there's a fine line here between patience and perseverance. The first word deals with patience in reference to aggravating people. The second word, perseverance, deals with patience in reference to aggravating circumstances. And so this is the way Paul lived, and this is the way Timothy followed. Paul's life was backed up by what he taught, and Timothy followed the same example. So he commends this young man in the faith for his sound doctrine. He commends him for following what he believed. But third, I want you to notice, Timothy followed in suffering, in suffering. We read in verse 11 that Timothy followed persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. He mentions in this verse three Galatian cities, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, that he visited on his first missionary journey and did some follow-up on his second missionary journey. Now, if you remember from the Acts, Timothy met Paul on his first missionary journey because Timothy was from Lystra. And God used the Apostle Paul to lead Timothy ultimately to faith in Jesus Christ. His mother, his grandmother nurtured him, and they believed the Old Testament Scriptures, but Paul came along, he opened them up, he proved Jesus was the Christ, and Timothy was converted and saved. And it appears from the Acts and from this verse that Timothy, no doubt, witnessed the stoning of the Apostle Paul in Lystra. 
He was in that city. He preached the gospel. There was a hostile mob. They didn't like what he said. They picked up stones and stoned him until he dropped on the ground and folks thought he was dead. And they left him for dead there in the gutter. But ultimately, he rose up. In fact, it may have been that Paul's persecution was instrumental in leading Timothy to Christ as Stephen's persecution was instrumental, Christ said, in leading Paul to the Savior. But out of this, he said, the Lord delivered me. Paul got back up. He went on to Derby, preached the gospel there, and more people were won to Jesus Christ. Out of this, he said, the Lord delivered me. Out of them all, the Lord delivered me. In either case, Timothy had followed Paul's persecutions, first in watching them and then in participating in them. He had learned that you could not be committed to Paul's teachings and his conduct without ultimately also sharing in his suffering. And then he quickly adds, look at verse 12, and indeed, all, underscore that, circle that in your minds, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, the fact that he was persecuted from city to city was proof that he was living a godly life. Now, I know there are prosperity preachers on the television today that will tell you that the proof of a godly life is a life of ease and pleasure and the road of least existence. But Paul teaches the exact opposite. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He is making it crystal clear that his experience of suffering was not unique. This verse asserts that anyone who is united with Christ, who is in Christ, who aims at godliness, will be persecuted by the world. That is, the godliness in a believer will arouse the antagonism of this world. It was true for Christ, and it will be true for us. Remember what our Lord taught us? If the Lord hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Look again at verse 12. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I'd like to unfold that thought just a little bit more for you because it's very, very important. God says that all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Perhaps you could look at it like this. There are those who are in Christ, but who are not in the world, and therefore they are not persecuted. Let me say that again. There are some who are in Christ, but not in the world, and therefore they are not persecuted. They're in Christ, they're saved, but they're not really in contact with the world. Now, you don't necessarily have to live in a monastery for that to be true. Some Christians, by choices they make, by their lack of obedience to live and to vocalize with that living the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully, consistently, time and time again, as God has told us to do, their willingness to identify with truth in a culture that is moving fast and furious away from truth. There are some people who are in Christ, but they will not identify in the world that Christianity and so they're not persecuted. Now they're in a holy huddle. They go to churches that often have their own little religious ghetto, and every once in a while they come out for an evangelical mugging mission, and then they say, oh, we're being persecuted. But for the most part, the pattern of their life is not to identify openly, unashamedly with Jesus Christ. 
Those who are in Christ but not in the world escape persecution by withdrawing from the world. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy will look at the other end of the spectrum, those who are in the world but not in Christ. It's part of our study in the book of 2 Timothy, and if you'd like a copy of this message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program 2TM7. If you can help support this ministry with a one-time gift or as a foundation partner, would you also call 877-787-7478? Your gift is tax-deductible and goes towards the purchase of additional radio time around the country. Thank you, and God bless you. Join us again tomorrow in our ongoing study of 2 Timothy as we search the Scriptures.